This show is a part of the podcast network of the Walled Garden Philosophical Society, an international community of philosophers and seekers dedicated to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever they may be found. To find out more, go to thewalledgarden.com. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Soul Searching with Seneca. So today we are focusing on letter number 35, on the friendship of kindred minds. This is one of those letters that is quite brief, but every sentence packs a punch. And that seems to be one of Seneca's strengths in his writings, is that nothing really goes to waste. You know, there have been a few times where I've kind of thought, well, Seneca, you're kind of rambling a little bit now, but I think on the whole, Seneca does a great job of taking us on an adventure that calls us to deeper attention, deeper focus in every moment while we're reading his letters. And, you know, I'm certainly finding that the deeper I go into his letters, the more I read of them, and the more I read them in in order from start to finish, I, you know, you, you start to get a sense of the adventure that Seneca is on. And I'm also starting to get a sense that I really have no idea the depth of what he's trying to achieve with these letters. And it can be kind of daunting. And I'm sure that all of you, as you've been listening along, have have recognized that in the way that I've been breaking these letters apart, that it's it's certainly not as simple as just taking the kind of moral lessons that he gives us in, in his letters and saying, well, here's how you can use it in your life. Well, great. You know, that's that's very practical stuff. I love that. But what I really want to know is what Seneca is up to, because he's up to something quite ambitious, right? Very ambitious. And of course, you will know as you've listened along to these episodes that I am certainly of of the, the school of thought, you might say, that uh, Seneca is writing these letters to himself, to a version of himself, perhaps his inner daemon, right? A daemon is uh, uh, perhaps he's writing them to his soul. He's writing them to this uh, this person in his mind who he is trying to become. Uh, but that's not all the way that I, I, I feel about these letters. You know, there's there's a lot more to the picture and there's certainly a lot that I don't understand. But I thought that the way we'd start this episode is actually, I'd like to read you the abstract for this academic paper entitled, Who is the Real Addressee of Seneca's Moral Letters to Lucilius? Now, I couldn't actually read the whole paper because it's in German, but the abstract is in English here and it gives us some good information to think about, at least some uh, some credible uh, academic research into this and and some sort of, uh, I I guess, a a vague conclusion here. But the article is by a person called Javita Dikamanine, and I know I butchered that name. We'll all just have to learn to deal with that. Uh, So anyway, this is the abstract. It says here, quote, Seneca's moral letters to Lucilius and dialogues are the earliest surviving works of the ancient Stoics. Even though Seneca's moral letters to Lucilius have attracted a great deal of scholarly attention, there is, however, disagreement in academia about to whom Seneca's moral letters to Lucilius was actually addressed. For instance, some scholars argue that Lucilius was a real person and that the letters are real, whereas others claim that Lucilius is a literary character and consequently Seneca's letters is literary fiction. So he goes on to say, the fact that Seneca always starts and ends his letters in the epistolary form of communication, 
and always mentions that he has received a letter from Lucilius is not a valid argument to prove that Seneca actually corresponded with Lucilius. Such form conforms to the standards and requirements of the classical epistolary genre. In fact, due to the lack of historical records in the text, it is likely that in his letters, Seneca creates a Seneca persona. As a result, we cannot be sure whether the author reveals his true feelings in the text or not. And he kind of goes on later on to say, all things considered, Seneca's moral letters to Lucilius is not the result of actual correspondence between the two philosophers, but is rather a work inspired by the letters of Epicurus and Cicero, as well as Stoic ideas. It is a carefully contrived Stoic text, written in epistolary form. It is also a perfect literary work designed for future generations. So there are some interesting ideas for us to think about. And, and, and you know, there's, of course, going to be other academics who would disagree. Uh, but, you know, my sense of this is, is that Javita, the, the academic who put together this, this paper, hits the nail on the head when he says that Seneca has created a persona. You know, I've already talked to you guys about my thoughts on the fact that Lucilius is kind of the little version of of Lucius, uh, so it's basically the same name but a, a younger version, and that's just one of many pieces to this puzzle that I believe are slowly coming together to show us that what Seneca is up to here is he's practicing almost a kind of divination. You know, this format of writing is. He, he's he's always trying to conceptualize what's the highest possible good here. You know, what if I had this student on the other end of my letters? What would I be guiding that student towards? And and what what would I be happy to see in that student? What 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 do I believe would be the actual path to sagehood? We know now that Seneca is saying that I believe you have the potential to to actually become the wise man. This is not some far out objective, or it is far out, but it, it's achievable. You you know, Seneca believes that. And and I believe that it's a form of divination in the same way that you could say Plato was practicing divination when he tried to embody the spirit of Socrates in his dialogues between Socrates and other people in, in say, the Republic. I mean, it's a form of divination because you're putting yourself in the place of the sage, the highest possible good, the highest possible human, the the person that you look up to and you're saying, if this person, with all that I know about them, if this person was in this conversation, this dialogue right now, what would they suggest? What would they argue? How would they speak? How would How would they debate? And to me, it seems like that's a form of divination because it, it's, it's putting yourself in a situation where you cannot help but be forced into thinking higher and, and, and trying to receive deeper and deeper wisdom. And so it, it's just interesting to see that this is somewhat what Seneca is doing here. He's having this dialogue with this persona and, 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 and trying to get closer to the truth about what wisdom is and what virtue is and how we can have that as he said in the last letter, embodied, it has to, our actions need to match our words. And at such a time, you know, the, 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 the spirit is embodied within the flesh, you know, it's like that kind of idea. It's very, very interesting. But anyway, I've rambled enough now, uh, and I'm going to dive into this letter. And the reason that I started talking about, uh, I, I guess, the, the whole idea of this not being addressed to Lucilius is because, again, in this letter, we find that it's 
there's some very strange language used. There's some very strange sentences used here uh, that y- you might think, well, this doesn't necessarily sound like he's having a conversation with another person. It kind of sounds like he's trying to summon some deeper wisdom from within himself. And so let's read through and we'll see what we take away from it. And uh, let me know if I'm being absolutely insane here. Uh, but uh Nonetheless, we'll, we'll read through and see what we can take out of this letter. So Seneca says, quote, When I urge you so strongly to your studies, it is my own interest which I am consulting. I want your friendship, and it cannot fall to my lot unless you proceed as you have begun with the task of developing yourself. For now, although you love me, you are not yet my friend. But, you reply, are these words of different meaning? Nay, more, they are totally unlike in meaning. A friend loves you, of course, but one who loves you is not in every case your friend. Friendship, accordingly, is always helpful, but love sometimes even does harm. Try to perfect yourself, if for no other reason, in order that you may learn how to love. End quote. All right, so I'm, I'm going to do my very best to break this down because there's a very practical element to what Seneca is saying here, but there's also, it seems to me, a very uh, inward-looking uh, sort of, um, what would you say, psychological truth or perhaps even a, a metaphysical truth that Seneca is trying to get at here. So the practical is this very interesting idea where Seneca kind of says, well, look, love is not the same as friendship. Love at times can can do harm. But friendship, well, that that is an art and it is something that we practice and can can if it's true friendship, it is always helpful. Right. But Seneca also is doing this thing where he's saying that, well, you know, if if you care about me and if, if you truly want a friendship with me, then you will persist in the development of yourself. Right. So, again, we can think about this very practically in our lives. I, I, I certainly believe that it is important in terms of uh, friendship in our lives, that, that we that we decide to take care of ourselves first so that we can give the best of ourselves in a friendship so that we can be helpful to the other person. Uh, but there's this idea that Jim Rohn talks about, which I, I love. He says, you know, people often say, well, you take care of me and I'll take care of you. Well, that's a very selfish way of, of, of looking at the situation. Rather, Jim Rohn says, why don't you say, you take care of you, I'll take care of me and then we'll get the ball rolling here, you know, because because then we're both in the right state to be giving the best of ourselves when we're actually looking after ourselves as if we are people worth taking care of. But it seems to me like the interesting uh, kind of metaphysical idea here of developing the soul, developing the goods of the soul and making sure that you're moving in a direction where your your soul can truly become a friend, right? Something that is, is working for your benefit at all times. I want to pull us back to this analogy that we see in the movie Pinocchio. I know I've talked about this before on the podcast, but one of the interesting things about that movie is that character, the conscience, right? The, the cricket, Jiminy Cricket. 
Jiminy Cricket actually being a, an old slang that was used for Jesus Christ, right? So obviously there's a metaphor there in the movie that Jiminy Cricket, the conscience, is is Christ or the highest possible good, right? You know, what, what do a lot of Christians wear on their arm? That What would Jesus do, right? So that's in itself a form of divination where they're, they're, they're constantly reminding themselves, you know, if, if, if I want my conscience to be clean, if I want uh, my, my inner value system to be built on a firm foundation, then I will constantly remember what would would this sage, the highest possible good, do uh, if he were here in me? You know, embodying th- this this blood body, this flesh, right? Uh, and so that's certainly a form of divination. But the idea that we find in in the movie Pinocchio is so interesting because this this character, and I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again: this character. The cricket is actually dressed in really kind of shabby clothes uh, at the start of the movie, and kind of gives not the best advice. You know, it, it perhaps perhaps does you might say love uh, Pinocchio, uh, right? And and is very much attached to him, but nonetheless, it is is that cricket a friend of Pinocchio? Because at times he's giving bad advice and guiding him in the wrong the wrong direction, whisp- whispering the wrong things into his ears. And as he said, he's dressed in shabby clothes, so he doesn't look too great. But it's interesting to note that the movie Pinocchio is as much a story about the development of that cricket as it is about the development of Pinocchio. Because Pinocchio over the movie eventually turns into a real boy, right? Uh, and by that time, the cricket is then dressed, dressed in a tuxedo, you know, and, and gives much better advice, has developed himself as well, and now is much more of a friend to Pinocchio as the guiding light, the conscious, uh, the consciousness from within, sorry, the, the conscience from within. And now let's take a look at what we are doing with the study of philosophy. Well, okay, we could, we could spend our entire lives studying philosophy, but, but what are we really trying to do when we study philosophy? To me, it seems like what we're trying to do, if we're, if we're reading books, if we're listening to podcasts, if we're you know, seeking wisdom wherever we can find it, what we are trying to do is build up a picture in our minds of, of, of the sage, the highest possible good, the best thing that we could aim at as a human being. If I could embody within myself some wisdom, what would that look like? Right, because if we're not doing that, then what are we doing? Well, we're just playing, we're, you know, building castles in the air. We're just, you know, playing around with ideas. It's it's all an ego trip, you know, to make us feel as though we're making progress. But here's the thing: at some point, we need to become the real boy. And what that means is that that wisdom that we have built on high, that that picture of the sage, that picture of the highest possible good that we could move towards and, and embody within our lives, right? That needs to be matched with our actions. Our actions have to partake in the wisdom that we have built up in our minds. And it's at that point when we become more than just a puppet. It's at that point when our mind is not so much at sea all the time, but but as Seneca will go on to say in this letter, it's it's built on more of a firm foundation, a firm footing, right? And, and we desire the same things, we, we 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 move towards the same things that that sage in our mind would move towards, right? It's it's such a f- a fascinating thing to think about because it reminds us that this wisdom that we're seeking here it has to be embodied, and if it's not embodied, then you're not doing the work of philosophy, right? You're just playing mind games, and have a think about what Seneca is saying here. You know, he starts by saying, when I urge you so strongly to do your studies, it is in my own interest which I am consulting. I want your friendship, and it cannot fall to my lot unless you proceed, as you have begun, with the task of developing yourself. So, 
imagine for a second that Seneca is speaking to a persona of himself that he has set up or the sage in his mind, the highest possible good that he can, he can conceive of. He said, well, develop yourself, make, make yourself better, right? Make yourself strong and a firm foundation. And in doing so, that will be the best pathway that you can take that will end up hopefully being a true friend to me because the counsel that you will give to me then will be so much better than what it is now. And although you may love me right now, although you may care for me right now, that does not mean that you are being a true friend to me because perhaps the advice that you would give or the, or the, the, the friendship that you would give, the, 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 the communion, as he will go on to say later on in this letter, that you will give, perhaps is, is not going to be as strong now as it, as it could be. And so you, you kind of can get the sense that Seneca is trying to develop that sage within his mind. And as he said in previous letters, he, he wants to bring that wisdom back down to earth, as above, so below, you know, like bring it down to earth, have it embodied within himself. And that seems to me to be the path to, to becoming a wise man, as Seneca would say. And so listen, I'm not asking you to believe all of this. Um, I'm not asking you to, to, to think the same as me here. Uh, I, I am even surprised that I believe any of this. Trust me, this is, it's, it's, a, it's, a weird, it's a weird sort of way to look at his letters. Um, and I'm not fully convinced yet, but I'm going on the adventure of thinking and we have to take some risks when we're doing that. We have to kind of be ad- adventurous, you know, exploratory in, in our thinking if we want to uh, discover something uh, interesting, I would say. So uh, anyway, that's just some interesting thoughts, some seeds for you to put in your garden of your mind and, <laughs> and to see if they grow. But nonetheless, I'm going to move on because there's heaps more interesting stuff coming up in this letter. Okay, so he says, quote, Hasten, therefore, in order that, while thus perfecting yourself for my benefit, you may not have learned perfection for the benefit of another. To be sure, I am already deriving some profit by imagining that we two shall be of one mind, and that whatever portion of my strength has yielded to age will return to me from your strength, although there is not so much difference between our ages." End quote. All right, so we're going to pause here because there's some very interesting ideas here, and, and, and maybe I have some thoughts on what he means. So he says, Hasten, therefore, in order that, while thus perfecting yourself for my benefit, you may not have learned perfection for the benefit of another. Let's think about that sentence, right? Because if you're thinking about this in the literal sense of, okay, Seneca is talking to another human being about friendship, then you're probably going to think, okay, Seneca is super needy, (laughs) right? Uh, Hasten in your perfection of yourself for my benefit, right? And, uh, And just so that you don't learn this perfection for the benefit of another person. It's like, don't perfect yourself for them, perfect yourself for me. No, 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 no. Okay, let's think about this. What has he talked about in, in the past letters in regards to the nature of the goods of the soul, right? The goods of the soul, uh, the, the virtue of the soul in itself, of itself, for itself, right? It's, it's, this, it's this inner pursuit of polishing the soul. And what, what you might think about that is 
You want to polish your soul in such a way that what your soul is always doing at all times is it's working for your benefit and your true benefit, you know, because you can be mistaken to think, well, okay, well, uh, I'm going to polish my soul in such a way where what it's always doing is getting me to seek after money and material goods, right? Because that must be my benefit. Well, no, Seneca is interested in what is the true, the truest benefit to yourself, How can you get your soul perfected, polished in such a way that what it is always doing is being a true friend by the definition of what it would mean to be a true friend? And, and, and so that's a pursuit of, of trying to climb these ladders higher and higher and higher. What is, what is friendship? What is true friendship? What would it mean for, for the, the self within that is moving you to always be giving you advice that a true friend would give you? And, and not only that, right, it's, it's perfecting itself within itself and for itself. And he's saying, do not perfect yourself for the benefit of another. Because what that would mean is that you're kind of, you know, developing yourself in such a way that at all times you're trying to please other people. And in such a way, you would be a puppet. You would be exactly like Pinocchio at the start of that movie. Your soul would be giving you terrible advice about what you should do, and and you're always going to be uh, pulled by these strings of other people, what they want, what they think is best for your life. Seneca wants you to move in the direction of the wise man, which is to have a firm foundation within you, a, a fortress within you that is at all times giving you the best advice, guiding you in the right direction, in the direction that would truly be good for you, and not in the direction that everybody else believes that you should go to. You remember that he said, you know, be very careful about uh, uh, what the people who are closest to you want for you, because they may love you, yes, but they, they want bad things for you, right? So he's trying to find this inner solitude, this inner light that will at all times serve us well. It's at least how I read it. I don't, I don't know how you read it, but that's how I'm reading it. So he goes on to say, to be sure, I am already deriving some profit by imagining that we two shall be of one mind and that whatever portion of my strength has yielded to age will return to me from your strength, although there is not very much different in our ages. So you remember me talking in previous episodes about how Seneca very much feels as though uh, the, the, the closer he gets to this sort of understanding, this deep understanding of, of a more perfected soul, the closer he gets to matching those ideas with, with his actions, he, he's starting to see this, this youthfulness come back, this, this, these flowing waters of life coming back into him, where although the body is decaying, although the flesh is falling apart, right? Nonetheless, the spirit, the soul is still strong and youthful and, and, and alive fully, right? And so what he's wanting here is to unify the youthful, revivified soul within him that is, is bursting forth with, with beauty and strength and virtue and all of these, 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 these beautiful philosophical ideas. And he wants that living soul to overcome the frailty and mortality of the body and for him to embody these ideas. And, and man, it's, it's, it's just interesting. There's interesting ideas to think about here. So anyway, he goes on, quote, But yet I wish to rejoice in the accomplished fact. We feel a joy over those whom we love, even when separated from them. But such joy is light and fleeting. 
the sight of a man and his presence and communion with him affords something of living pleasure. This is true at any rate if one not only sees the man one desires, but the sort of man one desires. End quote. So I want to pick up on this idea that he gives us here of not only seeing the man that you desire, but the sort of man that you desire. Because it seems to me, well, think about it like this, okay? When you're growing up, there are certain people who you really look up to. You just naturally are drawn to these sorts of people, right? And so if somebody were to ask you when you were a kid, well, why, why do you look up to that person? What, what, uh, what draws you into them? Well, you might not give such a sophisticated response. You might say, well, they're cool or, you know, I like them or whatever. But you, you, you're not old enough or wise enough to understand the reasons why you are drawn to that person. And Seneca points out here that there is a true joy, a living pleasure that, that comes when we not only see the man that we desire, but the sort of man, right? And, and that distinction there, not only the person, but the sort of person that they are, that is the work of philosophy, is we, we are going into abstract thinking and uh, we, we, we are trying to get a picture of the virtues that, that, that truly draw us in to admire another person. And so if somebody asked you, uh, as a philosopher, why do, you, why do you look up to that person? Well, you would talk more about these kind of abstracted ideas about what it means to truly be a good person. And when we are developing those ideas within ourselves, when we are thinking about this, we're we're doing philosophy because we're, we're trying to get a picture of what is the sage, what is the highest possible good, what would it mean to be a wise human being. And if you can find your way to some sort of solid conceptualization of what it would truly mean to be wise, to have wisdom, to be a good human being, well, then you have a firm foundation to, lie, to rely upon. You, you know, you have a foundation beneath you where you can start to say, okay, that if, if I can't break this, then that's what I'm aiming at. I'm going to be that. I'm going to be that person. And that is what we're trying to do at all times in philosophy. As we've talked about, it's, it's conceptualizing the highest possible good for our lives and moving towards that. So moving on, Seneca goes on to say, quote, Give yourself to me, therefore, as a gift of great price, and that you may strive the more... Reflect that you yourself are mortal, and that I am old. Hasten to find me, but hasten to find yourself first. Make progress, and before all else, endeavour to be consistent with yourself. And when you would find out whether you have accomplished anything, consider whether you desire the same things today that you desired yesterday. A shifting of the will indicates that the mind is at sea, heading in various directions according to the course of the wind. But that which is settled and solid does not wander from its place. This is the blessed lot of the completely wise man, and also, to a certain extent, of him who is progressing and has made some headway. Now, what is the difference between these two classes of men? The one is in motion, to be sure, but does not change its position. It merely tosses up and down where it is. 
the other is not in motion at all. Farewell. End quote. So doesn't this just feel like a, a, a love letter that Seneca is writing to himself, begging himself to, to make that next bit of progress towards being truly wise? You know, give yourself to me, therefore, as a gift of great price, and that you may strive the more, reflect that you yourself are mortal and that I am old. You know, so he's, he's, he's putting the pressure on, saying, listen... I'm not going to last much longer if, if you're going to help me to, to achieve this kind of state, to achieve this eudaimonia, this, this, this oikiosis, right? This, this enlightened state. If you're going to help me, let's get to it because we haven't got much time. And he says, you know, hasten to find me, but hasten to find yourself first. This is, this is one of the reasons why I, I just don't buy this idea that Lucilius was a real person because... What is Lucilius, you know, supposed to be out there looking for Seneca? Where is he? Where's Seneca? You know, hasten to find me, but hasten to find yourself first, you know? <laughs> like, well, what's going on here? He's clearly not writing to somebody because, uh, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me that Lucilius would be out there trying to look around for Seneca, trying to get to Seneca. And there's no writings in here where he's saying, well, you know, get yourself on a, a wagon and come over here to where I am and... Uh, no, he, this is an internal game that Seneca is playing here. He says, make progress before all else, endeavor to be consistent with yourself. And this is really where he goes on to give us this idea again that he has talked about multiple times in his letters so far, that the sage, the, the, the wise man, the truly wise person is somebody who is immovable in, in their values, immovable in the, in the principles, you might say, the characteristics of, of, of the, 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 that have been embodied within themselves, right? And so it's not as if they won't do different things in their life, but their values will always remain the same. They will always desire the same things and the truly wise person desires the same things and also acts out those desires in, in their life. So, you know, I personally believe that this letter, it reads more like a prayer that Seneca has written to himself about, about that inner light that is shining forth. And he, he's trying to call the absolute best from within. He's trying to, to, to summon the best possible sage from within himself. And, and he wants to, to achieve it. He really wants to achieve it. And there's just something beautiful about that. We could all take a look at Seneca's adventure here and say, wow, you know, that's, that's what it means to practice philosophy. That's what it means to truly seek and love wisdom. It's powerful stuff. So I'm going to leave it here. I'm going to leave all of those scattered thoughts, those half-baked ideas, those wild explorations for you and uh, just let it sit with you. And, and, and again, reach out if you have any questions, if you have any uh, comments, uh, any criticisms, I, I want to hear it. I, I don't want to just be doing this as a pursuit uh, just, just for my own sake. Uh, very much in the same way that Seneca saw this, this is a pursuit that I want to be uh, passed on to you for your benefit. And and if you feel like I'm on the right track, then share it with me. And if you feel like I'm on the right, the wrong track, you know, have that conversation. I'd love to know. So anyway, I will talk to you next time. I hope that this episode has been thought-provoking, uh, useful, and, and we'll see where we find ourselves in the next episode. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.